Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to Evan Hill, a reporter on the visual investigations team at the New York Times. I met Evan back at Northwestern University when we both worked at the student newspaper. Evan and I were never close friends or anything like that, but I always felt some kinship with him. He was from Wisconsin. I was from Wisconsin. He was interested in the Middle East. I was interested in China. We both were trying to break into foreign reporting at the same time. Success didn't come immediately, but we both got out there and somehow made it happen, even when there was no clear path. Okay, similar enough that I felt that way, but once we get into the particulars, it's pretty different. Evan ended up in the Middle East working for Al Jazeera and witnessed the Arab Spring firsthand, seeing events in Egypt's famous Tahrir Square unfold in front of him. Despite this early success, things go sideways for a bit when a career as a freelance journalist doesn't really work out. He quit journalism for a few years to work at Human Rights Watch and go to grad school. I remember thinking back then, this guy did all this and still doesn't have an awesome journalism job? What the hell? Is there any hope for any of us? But that was followed pretty quickly by what has to be one of the most rapid ascensions in journalism I've ever seen. When, in the span of a couple years, he gets a job at the New York Times and his team there wins a Pulitzer. It really is an unusual career path, unlike anyone I've interviewed on the podcast before. His career trajectory aside, there are some really incredible stories he tells here about working across the Middle East. It's a long interview, but it's worth hanging with it. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Evan Hill, a reporter on the visual investigations team at the New York Times. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Evan. Thanks for having me. To warm up a little bit, if you could just set the scene for us, tell us where you are both the physical space around you and geographically, and a little bit about what the past week or so of work has been like. Right now, I'm sitting in my apartment in the Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn. It's dark early. There was snow on the ground, but now it's disgusting. And the last week of work, I shouldn't say this if my editors are going to hear it, but has been very quiet as we (laughs) try to um, work our way back into a new year of news. Yeah, I don't know how it is, but at Reuters, we definitely follow the calendar. And like at the beginning of the year, we're trying to, we're coming up with the projects. And at the end of the year, it's a mad rush to finish them all. Is it kind of like that for you guys too? Yeah, there is always a rush to publish everything we've got by the end of the year. Also, I think that a lot of publications, they want to make sure that they get stuff out by the end of the year so that they can be entered into the awards. We rushed at the end of this year to make sure that we could put all of our airstrike and drone reporting out at the same time. So I know that there were members of our team who were um, rushing to put out the last piece of our civilian casualties investigation. Sure. And so that's done and you'll start on a new topic this next year. I mean, obviously you don't have to tell me what you're working on, but I've just out of curiosity. Yeah. I wouldn't say we wrapped up, but we did a significant amount of civilian casualty reporting in late 2021. We're definitely still poking around for more stuff to do on that subject, but the main batch of that reporting came out in 2021, which was associated with Asmat Khan's um, civilian casualty files, which we could talk about. 
but definitely I think there's still a ton of interest at the paper to keep investigating drone strikes and the U.S. air war. So that's not something that um, that we've taken our eyes off of for 2022. I know that I'm still looking at it. Cool. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll get more into that later on. But a big idea behind the podcast is to give people an idea how people find their ways into journalism and particularly foreign reporting. It can be very opaque how people get into it, or at least it was when I was starting out. I feel like we kind of figured it out as I went along. And uh, so if you could start way back at the beginning and tell us a little bit about where you were born, what growing up was like, and if anything made you interested in journalism early on. I was born in Evanston, Illinois in 1985, and my dad was a former music critic for the Chicago Reader, and also a bit of a Middle East file. He had been obsessed with Lawrence of Arabia as a kid. He had uh, had a sense of adventure instilled in him as a child growing up in the Chicago suburbs, going to the cinema and seeing all the classic swords and sandals epics of the age. And I think that for me, I mean, I know that I definitely absorbed his fascination with the Middle East through Lawrence of Arabia when I was a kid, which might sound problematic these days. Lawrence of Arabia was a young white man's introduction to the Middle East, and obviously Lawrence has its issues. But I think the seed was planted from a very young age that there was something interesting about that region of the world. Obviously, it was more romantic than realistic at that age. And then in 2001, there was September 11th. I was in high school. I was 15 years old. I remember I was in art metal class and we had NPR on every day and we were hearing the sort of breathless reports from NPR of the towers falling and had the same reaction as everybody else thinking that it must be an accident and then finding out that it wasn't. And I think that anyone who was alive for that can remember the absolute insanity of that moment and the jingoism and the xenophobia the Islamophobia, the racism, and the way that the media, much of the media, did an atrocious job of covering the region, Islam, Arabs, even terrorism, in trying to inform the American public what was going on, who these people were, what their grievances with the United States were, how important they were in their own societies. And even as a teenager, that was pretty easy to see. And then when I got to Northwestern for journalism school, I took a class with Professor Marta Dunsky called Reporting the Arab and Muslim World. And um, she had been a Chicago Tribune correspondent, I believe, in Jerusalem. And what she did was actually pretty simple, which was basically a, just a, a straight-up critique every week of how the media covered the Arab and Muslim world in the Middle East. And I wouldn't say it was like, um, it wasn't an epiphany because we were all sort of steeped in that and we knew it was going on, but it was very useful to train my brain on that kind of analysis. And then I ended up studying abroad in Egypt. I ended up studying Arabic at Northwestern. 
And it was just this kind of snowball rolling downhill, accumulating influences that seems now looking back on it as sort of this inevitable trajectory toward me wanting to go report in the Middle East. You so wait, did you you grew you were born in Evanston? I always thought you were from Wisconsin. You are from Wisconsin in some way, shape, or form, aren't you? I'm more from Wisconsin than I am from Illinois for sure. I'm I was born in Evanston, which made my return to Evanston in, in my mom's eyes poetic. She used to tell me about how she had walked me in a stroller beneath the gates of Northwestern University. But we moved to Wisconsin when I was five, so I was raised in Wisconsin. Although my parents made sure that we did not become Green Bay Packers fans, which I think is very important. (laughs) I remember that, yeah. You were a Bears fan. And so what was your plan then coming out of school? Did you have any idea how to go about getting to the Middle East? I assume that was where you wanted to go, but what, what was the plan coming out of school? Journalism, like the nice way to say it, would be to say that journalism was going through a transition in the late 2000s. The old ways were dying and the new ways had not yet been born. (laughs) I don't even know if I would say it's better or worse now. It still seems like kind of a shit show. But then it was really a shit show. And basically, for anyone who wanted to do international journalism in the late 2000s, there was no existing model. The old model would have been for someone like me to go work for the Chicago Tribune out of the Medill School of Journalism, go straight to the Tribune, become a metro reporter, cover courts and cops, city government, and then hopefully in five years, maybe, get a foreign assignment and see where that goes. And that model was... I would say by 2007, when I graduated, almost totally dead. And it was funny, actually, because the year that I was graduating, when I was a senior in college, I emailed Anthony Shadid, the late great reporter for The Post and The Times, really a, you know, a giant of his generation, in a very typical young person way, just to sort of beg for advice. And Anthony Shadid wrote me back, to his credit, But the funny thing is that even Anthony Shadid really couldn't see what was going on in the industry because Anthony Shadid's advice was basically what I just told you. Anthony Shadid wrote me back and he said, go work for a little while at a major newspaper, work your way up, and then you'll get that foreign assignment, which would have been fine advice up until, you know, like the mid 2000s when everything started to break down. So what I did was a friend of mine from Medill, Greg Carlstrom, who had graduated the same year as me, we both had the same dream, essentially the same dream. We were very similar people in that respect. We were two white guys from the United States who had this interest in the Middle East, who studied Arabic. So I move out to San Francisco after graduating from college with my girlfriend at the time. He moves to Washington, D.C. after a brief stint trying to freelance in the Middle East finds that freelancing is not sustainable there, comes back, moves to D.C. And so we decide to start a blog that we call The Medjlis, which is an Arabic word for sort of an assembly or a gathering of people. And this was like the era when Huffington Post was kind of becoming powerful, when Talking Points Memo was becoming widespread. So the idea of 
news sites and blogs that would essentially not do any original reporting but aggregate, that was the time when those things were, were rising. And a lot of us looked on them with disdain. But we, Greg and I sort of thought, what if we did this even though we kind of hate it <laughs> for the Middle East? Because no one was doing that. <laughs> no one was doing it. So we, we thought, what if we just create a site that aggregates Middle East news, offers some of our boneheaded commentary on it, and elevates what we think are good stories? And so basically from 2007 to 2009 or 10, I had a full-time job in San Francisco as a reporter at a very small newspaper. But what I was passionate about was this blog that Greg and I were working on. And um, it never became a smash success. We never tried to monetize it. We were barely on the cusp of thinking about maybe doing like Google advertising. But we had accumulated, I think, you know, around... 80 or 90,000 unique visitors a month. Oh, wow. Those, yeah, those people were in DC and, you know, we would get notes and attention from professors who we thought would never pay any attention to us. And it was simply, you know, it was because no one else was doing it. So we were filling a void. And anyway, to make a long story short, that blog led to he and I catching the attention of the man who was running Al Jazeera English's website and they reached out to us. Oh, wow. Just to back up for a second, I forgot uh, we glossed over that you and I know each other from uh, the student newspaper at Northwestern. You were two years ahead of me. That's right. You must have been the assistant city editor or something at one point under Jordan Weissman. Was that how I knew you or were you on the campus desk? I forget. Now you're going to trip me into making a factual mistake, <laughs> which is a Medill F, because I can't. No, Jordan. Yeah. OK, I'm going to get it right. Jordan was the campus editor, and I was Jordan's deputy campus editor. Oh, and I was on the campus desk. I was only on the city desk later. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I was deputy campus editor. You know, I never had that level that level of drive and aspiration in my college years to become the editor of something. I was such, I was pretty lazy. So I I was the deputy campus editor, despite the fact that Jordan was a year younger than me. But he was a very capable editor, and we actually. I look back on my time at the Daily Northwestern really fondly, especially because Jordan and I sort of enterprised a little investigation into a really tragic, actually, murder that occurred right off campus of a woman. It was sort of a domestic situation. And that was, I think, both his and my first brush with like a serious story, you know, not like student government story. And the fact that we could handle it and interview people and talk to the cops definitely gave me my sort of first little burst of confidence. Yeah, well, I mean, it was very formative for me, too. I mean, there have been several things in my life that have pushed me in the right direction. But I mean, I probably wouldn't be a journalist if not for Jordan and the campus desk. Like I had joined the Daily and kind of was on it for a semester, wasn't really inspired, didn't really know what I was doing. And then he came in, got me fired up about it. And suddenly I was doing, you know, two, three stories a week and collecting a measly paycheck, but still one of the people who got paid a little bit. So yeah, that kind of set me on my course. And I always thought you were only one year older than me, but I guess you're two. I always assumed you were the same age as Jordan, but either way, I mean, we all kind of graduated into a very similar situation of just, you know, no jobs, unclear what the path is, 
people in the industry don't even seem to really know what the path is anymore. Yep. And I remember you started that blog and from there, yeah, I wasn't quite sure how you, you made the jump. So, so who was the editor at Al Jazeera English and how did that all go down? His name is Mohammed Nanabai. I don't know how long he had been running the website before I joined, but I think it might've been a short time, maybe a year or so. Mohammed Nanabai was kind of a, a web 2.0 believer he was an innovator. I don't know if they brought him in to shake things up, but I think that he came in to shake things up. Al Jazeera English, it was not a like a moribund institution, but it was the classically television-oriented enterprise. And I think that that's probably what the people who, you know, the, the Qataris who were ultimately in charge wanted it to be, was sort of a flagship television station being run out of Doha. But what Muhammad saw was the opportunity to make it a news website. The news website prior to him taking over was a true relic of the changing web in that day. Like the 2000s, like if you remember, was when graphic design like <laughs> finally started to matter for <laughs> online, you know, front pages. And then I think... I can't remember when Snowfall came out and, and all of those sort of, you know, adventures in design. I think that might have been like the early 2010s. We were right on the cusp of like experimentation with how online news could be presented. And I think Muhammad had a view of that horizon. So anyway, he must have seen our blog, The Medulus, and reached out to Greg basically asked Greg if he wanted to come to the Middle East and work for Al Jazeera English. And then I reached out to him and said, hey, uh, you know, actually, I'd love to come too. <laughs> Please don't forget about me. And he said, yeah. And I think me and Greg's sort of starry-eyed vision was, hey, they want us to come over there and like write this blog for them and we'll have totally free reign. That's obviously not how it turned out. Sure. But that was... As you said, the path was so unclear because the traditional correspondent jobs were dead or dying. Freelance would not pay the bills. And the outlets that would come to replace some of these institutions, or at least replace the positions that had been lost, you know, like even a BuzzFeed, were not going to be doing that for like six years. Right. So... Greg and I saw Al Jazeera English as this kind of like lifeboat, this rare opportunity to get paid a really sizable salary because this is a natural gas state that your income's not being taxed, all that. So get paid. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, it was more money than um, most people were earning at 25, which took me a, a long time to ever earn again, probably. But, you know, getting paid a lot to write about the Middle East, which was kind of a dream. Now, once we got there, you know, there were various hiccups. Al Jazeera English, you know, it had its own issues. But it, as a launching pad, it was huge. And I think that, you know, I really owe much of my career to that lucky convergence and, and Muhammad Nanabai offering us that opportunity. Yeah, wow. Well, uh, where, where did they send you first? Was it Doha? Yeah, so everybody basically has to go to Doha, for better or worse. Doha is a, or at least when I was there, which is 2010 to 2012, was insanely stratified 
city. I mean, there was a totally exploited worker class of people from South Asia. And then there was a basically Qatari class that called the shots. And then there was a, a foreign elite, like all of us who worked at Al Jazeera English, who were making really big salaries for us, at least to do things that I think the countries saw as prestige projects, whether that was, you know, construction or natural gas, or in this case, media. But what made Al Jazeera English unique was that prior to, and even a little bit after the Arab Spring, it did function with, I would say, independence. And, you know, we can we can get into that. I never witnessed at Al Jazeera English state interference in our coverage or, or state direction to our coverage. Um, I th- That's good. Yeah, I think that I think that there were coverage choices made that reflected where we were based. We always asked ourselves, like, okay, so who's going to be allowed to cover the migrant worker issue and exploitation in Doha? You know, eventually the channel did. And you could argue that they would allow the occasional piece about workers in, in Qatar to sort of satisfy critics while never actually allowing, you know, for example, there would not be investigative reports about the Qatari royal family in Qatar. That would never happen. So I think that there were limits on it. The argument was always, well, Qatar doesn't actually ma- ma- The politics of Qatar don't actually matter that much. Um, sure. Eventually, obviously, they did during the Arab Spring. But when we got there, we basically were put on the web desk which was a physical desk, a (laughs) circular physical desk in the corner of the newsroom and very much like the misfit outcasts of Al Jazeera English. Nobody really cared about what was going online. And the model of that desk when we arrived was basically two things. We want you to post clips of what goes on Al Jazeera English TV and we want you to edit and synthesize wire services. Really just sort of like mind-numbing, mundane stuff. Sure. But, you know, like as I said, Mohammed Nanabai had a different vision for the website. And so very quickly, new hires like me and Greg wanted to write our own stuff. We wanted to write features. We had to lobby for it. We started to write features, sort of basic, you know, political analysis of the Middle East type pieces. But six months into it, it was December 2010, and I think that the obstacles we were facing in doing the kind of like active coverage that we wanted to do were starting to really get on my nerves. And, and I did have thoughts in like December 2010 about whether this was right for me, you know, very far away from friends and family, sitting in the desert in a place where, you know, there's not a ton to do. You know, the crew of people at Al Jazeera was very cool, and, and, I, and I love those people who I worked with, but, you know, ultimately, like, not the kind of place where I would want to put down roots. I remember thinking, maybe I, should, maybe I should leave, maybe I should come back to the States, find any job that I can get in the States, and see what happens there. Then, of course, what happens in December 2010 is that Tunisia erupts in protest, and in January 2011, they spread across the region, and they spread to Egypt. And I had kind of tried to make Egypt my area of coverage at Al Jazeera English on the website. I had sort of been pitching Egypt stories. I had been sent to Egypt very briefly in the fall of 2010 to cover very rigged, very corrupt parliamentary elections. And so when the Arab Spring started, I went up to Mohammed's office 
and I didn't tell him this sort of this bluntly, but in so many words, I, I think what I said to him was, I have to go cover this. It's a once in a lifetime thing. And if I can't do it for Al Jazeera English, I'm going to have to quit. I don't think I threatened to quit in his office, but to his, (laughs) (laughs) to his credit, he said, you have two options. You can sit here and run our live blog. And no one remembers this today, but in January, 2011, the Al Jazeera English live blog was like the hive of information for the rest of the world. Like Al Jazeera English had the jump on everybody for the Arab Spring by virtue of its position. So he said, you can stay here and you can run our live blog and everyone will know who you are and people will be following you on Twitter and it'll be crazy. Or you can go to Egypt and you'll be on the ground, but there's no internet and you'll be in a black hole. And I said, well, send me to Egypt. And, and he said, okay. So four days after protests began in Egypt, I flew over there. Wow. So by that point, I mean, it had been a lot of desk-based reporting. You had, you know, gotten out to Egypt once, it sounds like, previously. Did you have any idea what you were doing? Or how did you go about it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, on one hand, uh, no. I had no clue what I was doing. (laughs) On the other hand, there are benefits to having a young and inexperienced person in that environment. I mean, it's a little bit, I would never say that it's as dangerous as being in combat. I would never say that. But in the same way that young people are less reluctant to go into battle or take less care about it, young people in journalism, young journalists, young freelancers will put themselves in greater danger and are more comfortable putting themselves at risk. And so I definitely, I took risks in January 2011 and in those sort of early months of the Arab Spring that I would not have taken in my 30s, for example. I think that the people who ran, the people who were the top editors at Al Jazeera Jazeera English who were all television editors and didn't realize the changes that had been occurring on the website, when suddenly myself and then Greg were on the ground in Cairo scurrying around without supervision... I think they had a heart attack. <laughs> I remember there was like an email or a a phone call from um, a woman named Heather Allen, who was one of the top editors at Al Jazeera English at the time that was basically, do not ever go out in the city by yourself again. Because we were just, you know, that was what we knew to do from our training in journalism school, from the little experience that we had was, no, we're just going to go out on the street and, and we're going to talk to people. And we did. Sure. And it got extremely, extremely hairy. You know, there were threats. You know, obviously there were people on the Al Jazeera English team who left Cairo and went back because of how threatening it was. I had the most formative experiences of my life on the ground in Cairo in January and February 2011. And I did things that I don't regret at all because they were necessary for the reporting and I witnessed things that, you know, it's truly my privilege to have seen at the same time. You know, I think that being thrown into that environment as a young person, having never been in a violent protest before, or even a large protest before, I mean, that'll blow your hair back as a, as a 25 year old, you're not ready. You're not ready to confront those kinds of things. And I think that that probably contributed to 
stress and anxiety later in my life is that having to deal with these very scary street situations during the Arab Spring, obviously that's like a, that's a stress that you carry with you for a long time. Not to say that what I had to experience was comparable to what Egyptians have had to experience and are still experiencing people I've interviewed who've been in much worse situations. But for a young journalist, it was a highly stressful. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine where you going around a lot with the TV folks or were you really just doing your own thing most of the time? Almost all the time we were doing our own thing. And I think that's what makes the reporting good TV. You know, the experience I had watching how the Al Jazeera English TV folks would work convinced me that I, I much preferred to do what you would call newspaper reporting, but you know, is now just digital reporting, just reporting on the street with a recorder or a, or a pen and paper because the necessity to be sort of unobtrusive and to keep a low profile was very high in Cairo in those days. And to be able to walk around with a pen and paper and talk to people quietly was so much more useful. I mean, TV crews were being attacked routinely. So I tried to keep my distance from them. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, Al Jazeera has this huge operation, you know, TV, they've got the people back in Doha running the live blog. How does it shake out? Like what, what kind of information are you sending in? Are you, what sort of, just if you have any example or anything, just to give us a sense of the flavor of something you might've done at that time. They were trying a few different things. I mean, <laughs> you know, Mohammed Nanabai had interesting ideas for digital reporting, things that were, you know, even a little bit ahead of their time. And just in terms of having one reporter out there who could be filing video, filing pictures, filing text, tweeting. I mean, Twitter in 2011, that was really, aside from, I think, for me, the protests in Iran in 2009, 2011 was when it exploded. And having your reporters on Twitter on the ground was a novelty. And so he supported all of these things. They also had some more harebrained ideas, like, I believe it was floated at one time that they wanted us to print thousands of flyers that would have directions for how people could upload their videos to like an Al Jazeera platform and share their videos. So it was an idea that has since, I think, grown into a little bit more fruition, which is obviously sort of, you know, citizen generated video and how to exploit that, uh, which we can talk about. But <laughs> the idea that you should have a 25 year old white guy from America handing out flyers in Cairo to people. So that encouraging them to upload videos of the revolution was basically like a, a passport for imprisonment. So um, <laughs> we very quickly dropped that idea, but you know, what I enjoyed kind of the most was tweeting, you know, that instant transfer of information from the ground in Cairo to the rest of the world. And I think that, I mean, no one had seen a revolution in the, that was the first revolution in the age of social media. And obviously people have written about this a million times, but for policymakers in Washington, DC, for, for the curious back in Wisconsin to log on and see on someone's Twitter that Tahrir Square is being assaulted and minute by minute find out what's happening was sort of a 
ludicrously exciting moment just in terms of of media sure yeah and i mean i'll be honest i didn't read a single al jazeera english article but i did definitely follow your twitter and i remember reading it and i remember reading this one specific time where you were like running literally running and tweeting at the same time it sounded like it was there was like lots of logistics <laughs> descriptions like this is happening over here i'm running over here well, I feel like this might have not been, this might have been later on. I can't remember when it was, but that really made an impression on me. And I was like, wow, he's really, really in the thick of it. I mean, it's the type of situation every journalist, you know, dreams about being in. I think at least, maybe not every journalist, but, uh, you know, it's such <laughs> a huge story. I mean, that doesn't come along very often and to be, you know, right in the middle of it. So how how long does that period last for? So from 2011 to 2012, I'm basically based out of Doha, but trying to get to Egypt as much as I can. I was also sent to Libya twice during their uprising, which was also, you know, an exciting but frightening period. You know, there were occasions there where I probably came closer to mortal harm than I ever have in my life. And definitely I remember one time for anyone who recalls the the Libyan civil war at all, there was a period where all the journalists were based in the East in a city called Benghazi. And there was a rebel held city in the West behind the front lines called Misrata and it was under siege by Gaddafi's forces. And so that very quickly became the center of, of media attention. And journalists were sort of smuggling themselves in by boat. And I spent like a day working with a friend of mine who was also a fixer for us, trying to arrange a boat from Benghazi to Misrata. And um, I remember... I believe a guy named Rob Hodges, who was a senior television producer and ultimately in control of the team in Benghazi because television, it would always be a television person in in charge of the team. He entertained the idea to his credit. You know, he didn't dismiss it out of hand, but at the end of the day, he said, no, I, I can't let you do that. That's just, it's, we have no guarantees that this is safe or who this person is, who's going to be driving the boat, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, Misrata was, Ultimately, the rebels broke out and and defeated Gaddafi's forces, but it was dangerous, deadly situation. And that's where the photojournalists, Tim Hetherington and Chris Hondros, were killed by shrapnel in a, I believe it was a mortar or an RPG strike, which was a sort of huge and devastating event for the cohort of foreign correspondents who were about a decade older than me at the time, who they, you know, they all knew these guys. And so to have... In our cohort, you know, no one was killed or injured at that time, but for them, it was a really devastating experience. And so speaking of being young and thrown into these, into these sort of world historic situations, there are such highs to that experience. And as you said, I mean, it is for a certain kind of person and I'm that kind of person and, you know, you're probably that kind of person. And I think a lot of, a lot of journalists are that kind of person. It's exactly where you want to be in the center of the action, but there are risks to that and sometimes very high risks. And if you're young 
there is a risk that you're going to put yourself in one of those positions. And so I feel kind of like blessed in two ways. One is that I was there at the right time to, to see this and experience this. But the other part of it is that I avoided and people helped me avoid some of the most terrible situations out there. That was 2011 for me. Absolutely. The craziest year of my life. And then 2012, the Arab Spring starts to slow down, if you will, and progress starts to slow down. And the youth who Obama had famously said in his quote about Egypt, he said he wanted the Google guy to be president and the <laughs> the youth in Tahrir Square to win. And that didn't happen, right? So it slows down in 2012, which also means that our opportunities to go do the reporting we want to do slow down because there's less interest. And so by the end of 2012, I felt like I had reached the limits of my experience at Al Jazeera English. And I decided to, for the first time in my life, try my hand at freelancing. So I quit and I moved to Cairo and I had a string with the Times of London because their stringer had just left and he handed it off to me. And that was kind of like the little thing I was holding on to as like a respectable outlet that I could regularly contribute to. And then I, and then I sort of very quickly tried to start pitching myself to places like foreign policy in the Atlantic. Sure. So what year was that again? 2012. 2012. Okay. So this was still a while ago. I mean, I don't know if this is something you're willing to talk about, but I do remember emailing with you. And I guess, yeah, it was around this time. I moved to China in 2011. And uh, I pretty promptly, like a couple months later, nothing related to my job, got jumped by some guys and, and beaten up. And I remember the same thing had happened to you. And I wasn't sure under what context it was. I never got the full story. And if, if you're willing to talk about it, if you're not, it's not a big deal. I'm just curious uh, what happened. Yeah, mine was coverage related. And actually, it's a great example of the kind of stupid shit that you can end up in <laughs> when you're uh, a young reporter without anyone kind of helping you along. So what happened there was, um, I believe this was November or December 2011. I mean, I was absolutely a pain in the ass to my editors at Al Jazeera English because I wanted to be on the ground all the time. They couldn't and wouldn't allow me to be on the ground all the time. And so I would find any way to get there. And so I actually, I believe I used vacation days to go to fly from Doha to Cairo at a time when I knew there would be election related activity. And I was pitching stories to foreign policy because I knew Al Jazeera English wouldn't take them, mm -hmm. which was, you know, like a shifty thing to do. And it's <laughs> not necessarily advice that I would give to other journalists, but you know, Hey, when you're that young, it's kind of like, you'll do whatever it takes to get your name out there. So I was there and there was a protest in front of the parliament building in downtown Cairo. And I called up a friend of mine who was also kind of working as like a reporting assistant for me I was just paying her out of pocket. I was kind of like, you know, this was almost freelancing, even though I was employed by Al Jazeera English at the time. <laughs> and I said, hey, do you want to meet me? Do you want to meet me downtown? Let's go to this protest. And she said, yeah. And we ended up there. And I had my little, like, Nikon camera with me. I was sort of an aspiring amateur photographer. 
which ended very quickly that day, my amateur photography, because I immediately went to the front line of the protest because it's so rare to have unfettered access to the front. And the front is this kind of like mythical, every journalist, every photographer wants to know what it's like at the front of these things because you're so often in the back. And I suddenly was at the front. What you find out in protests is that actually you don't want to be at the front. Yeah. So I was taking pictures of protesters throwing rocks at police who were guarding parliament and on top of parliament and and a neighboring building that was like 10 stories tall there were soldiers that were throwing debris down on the crowd below gesticulating at them i think they were even urinating on them really trying to provoke them and the crowd was throwing stuff back so i was at the front of this taking pictures and then all of a sudden the cops and the military police basically do a pincer movement and they come out of either end of the street that we're on and there's no exit and they wrap us up basically immediately. There's nowhere to go. I start running away and I remember very distinctly, cause it's not the kind of thing you forget Egyptian military police officer leveling an AK at me and screaming and me screaming. I'm a journalist in Arabic and I still, even in that moment, I was like, there's no way this guy's going to shoot me. Like he's not going to shoot a white foreigner because that is the protection that you have as, as a white person in Egypt. There's always this idea that I'm a white American. And at, at the very end of the day, worst comes to worst. That's like my get out of jail free ticket. And so I can do certain things that other people can't do because I have this like halo, you know, right. He didn't shoot, but what happened was that the other military police and the plainclothes cops or guards of parliament, whoever they were, you know, started to beat the crap out of me. They landed a few solid punches. I remember seeing a guy who had a crowbar and I couldn't, I I still don't know if he hit me in the head or on the hand, but basically I was manhandled uh, into parliament. Obviously my adrenaline was pumping at a, at a high degree and I wasn't, didn't really take stock of my own injuries, but was kind of looking around. They took my passport. They ripped my camera out of my hands. They took my phone out of my pocket they took my wallet out of my pocket. I had lost everything. They kept me inside parliament with a bunch of Egyptian protesters. And I realized I was bleeding from the back of my head and it was dripping down the collar of my shirt. Other people, there were a couple of people who were, who were worse off than me and the police were treating a few of them um, really poorly. There were, there was an officer in the military police who went up to one of the female protesters who I think had argued that the, about the detention and he took the passports he was holding, the IDs he was holding and slapped her in the face. And everyone was pretty freaked out. And then after maybe two hours of being held in the parliament building, they decided, I think with some mediation from sort of elite protesters on the outside they decided to release us and i ended up having to get not too many i think like five stitches in the top of my head i mean that was very scary and it was a classic example of (laughs) the poor decisions you can make when you're a young person who doesn't have a lot of experience and who doesn't have anyone around telling them that you're you know you're making a bad choice right now yeah that's crazy that's crazy so i i imagine you didn't get anything out of that trip and like how did you (laughs) Uh, did your Al Jazeera editors ever find out about it or you kept it to yourself? No, they, they found out immediately because people had seen me get arrested and they started to tweet about it. Uh, and so they did not help me get out because I don't think that they, I don't think the information got to them fast enough. 
but they were extremely displeased. I didn't write anything for them or anyone else. I think they told me uh, you do not get to write about this because you were not there on assignment for us. I'm sure, you know, if I had to guess, I would say behind the scenes, they were probably not pleased that there was the potential here for an actual incident that could affect their broader goals in Egypt, not to mention sort of government to government relations with Egypt, should a employee of Al Jazeera English be imprisoned, which never happened, but they were, they were very displeased. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, pretty traumatic experience. So I guess he had to jump back to when you were a freelancer. How long did you do that stringing out of Cairo for? How did that last for? That lasted for less than a year because basically winter of 2012 in Cairo, like November, December 2012 in Cairo, is when things started to get pretty dark politically. The Muslim Brotherhood government had basically failed to usher in a transition that involved a diverse array of Egyptian actors. And so the political process was falling apart and the movement toward the coup d'etat began and forces started to array against them with the support of the state and the military, which obviously then culminates in the July 2013 coup. But what happened is that prior to the coup, I had spent seven months or so freelancing in Egypt and I took stock of my bank account and my goals for my career and I started to wonder if if this was sustainable and I started to realize why freelancing was such a challenge. I think that there are people who have the skills and the patience and the drive to make careers out of freelancing and I know people who were longtime freelancers who then, you know, have gotten jobs with magazines or, or other outlets. I personally am just not built that way. I think that I have this fear of instability. And so the idea of just being out there detached from a publication, entirely responsible for my own success, and also that my success would also depend on the connections I was able to forge with editors and, you know, whether or not I was reaching somebody at the right time of day, whether they would take my piece, whether they had a budget, freaked me out in a, in a professional way. And so I, at the time, had an offer from BuzzFeed, actually, to be a correspondent for them in Cairo. And at the same time, Al Jazeera America was launching and they were establishing an office and a digital office in New York. And it sounds very strange even sort of for me to say it now looking back at the last decade, but I did not take the BuzzFeed offer and I went to New York after the coup in Egypt, shortly after the coup in July, 2013 to work for Al Jazeera America. And I think that, you know, on, on one hand, it's an example of how, putting yourself out there and writing the hell out of stories can end up with an offer to join an organization. But it's also, it, you know, it also comes down to like real personal stuff, which for me was just, I wanted to move back to the States. I felt like I had been abroad for a long time. I missed my friends. I missed my family. And I wanted to try out living in New York city. And 
also BuzzFeed in 2013 was just building this foreign news operation, which would go on to acquire a very stellar reputation, you know, with the likes of Miriam Elder and, and Mike Giglio reporting and editing for them. Mike would end up being a correspondent in the Middle East for BuzzFeed. But I think I was, I was a little nervous about it too. And wrongly, I think, you know, because I th- uh, we didn't yet realize that these sort of digital publications were the future. And so I took the offer to come back to New York and I ended up working for a short spell at Al Jazeera America. Sure. And why did you end up leaving there? Why was it only a short spell? I mean, Al Jazeera America was a optimistic but troubled endeavor. I think that the idea of bringing Al Jazeera to a greater American audience would have been beneficial. And I think that had Al Jazeera just made the Al Jazeera English live stream more available, if sort of a more web-focused open vision had won out and they had just made the Al Jazeera English live stream widely available to Americans, that probably would have been more effective and far easier and far less expensive than trying to launch an entirely new cable channel in 2013, 2014. In retrospect, even saying that, it looks a little bit doomed. And it might have been doomed from the start. Initially, Al Jazeera America digital news operation was really great, stellar. They had great people working for them, people who've gone on to other good jobs. They paid freelancers a really great rate. They covered things in the United States that were undercovered. They had great Native American coverage for one thing. And then I just think that about a year into that experience, I could see that covering the United States was not what I wanted to spend the rest of my career doing. And I also, I think I had reached a point where I wanted to see what existed beyond journalism. I remember coming into Al Jazeera America at the very beginning and an editor telling me to write 800 words about something that had happened related to city government in Detroit that was making national news that day. And I remember thinking that this was the style of content creation that I had been lucky enough to miss while I was in the Middle East. Because I, unlike, I think, a lot of my peers and, and your peers and a lot of journalists, I had not come up in um, the East Coast media environment and never knew what it was like to work at a news operation where you were kind of a general assignment person and you had to write every day. The idea of writing every day was strange to me, whereas I think a lot of people had to write multiple times a day in that era and still do. And I just thought, I'm not good at this. I don't even know if I have the confidence to do this. Part of me felt like a little bit of that kind of writing is BSing because, you know, the reader wants to assume that the person they're reading has some knowledge or authority. And a lot of the time for publications that are asking young reporters to write 800 words on a subject they've just encountered for the first time that day, that's obviously not the case, which is a long way of saying that, you know, I wanted to see what existed outside of journalism and see if there was a, another career path. And Human Rights Watch 
had earned a amazing reputation during the Arab Spring, particularly in Egypt. The researcher at the time, a woman named Heba Morayef, who's gone on to work for Amnesty International, she was, you know, the authority um, on the Egyptian state abuse, on the human rights movement in Egypt, on activism. I looked to her as one of the voices of God. And so she left that position and it opened up. And I thought, maybe this is something I should do. You know, maybe this is going to be a world of long, deep investigations. It will not be a world subject to the pressure of news. It will be a world specifically aimed at affecting change, which I thought maybe that's something I'm interested in. And it returns me to the Middle East, which is, I think, you know, where my interests lie. And so I ended up after a year, I took a job as the Egypt researcher for Human Rights Watch. But that was based in the U.S., right? Or was it back in the Middle East? Very briefly based in the U.S. from fall of 2014 to spring of 2015. And in the spring of 2015, I moved to Beirut. Okay. Wow. And yeah, this is your next phase. I remember the, like, Evan almost quits journalism phase. I feel like, you know, I talked to you at some point and, you know, you really weren't sure if journalism was going to be for you anymore. And uh, also, I remember just asking you and you were like, well, if I wanted to stay in the Middle East, these would be my options, you know, stringing, stringing is not for me, you know, and there are relatively few correspondent jobs. And yeah, it made sense. But still, I thought it was a major bummer because I was like, oh, he's done all this shit and he still can't like get a great, you know, journalism job. I realized you wanted to look, you know, outside to. But so you do Human Rights Watch and then you go to grad school, I remember, and then it was kind of anybody's guess what was going to happen. Anything you want to say about that period? I mean, how? what did you go to grad school for? Kind of catch us up to the New York Times, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that there's a lot of journalists who have also had long, dark nights of the soul <laughs> like I have. And I mean, part of it maybe is a lesson in sticking it out which was always a problem for me, um, you know, sticking it out. In some cases, it's probably a good idea not to stick it out and to move on to a new thing. But in some cases, maybe you should stick it out. Should I have stayed at Al Jazeera English longer? Should I have uh, freelanced longer in Egypt? Would it have been a better idea to become a correspondent for BuzzFeed News in Cairo uh, in 2013? Obviously, I've ended up in a really lucky place that I absolutely love, and I'm happy to, you know, talk about that too. And so these don't look like mistakes in hindsight, but sort of jumping away from journalism, I guess I don't know. I'm just kind of riffing out loud, but sometimes if you put in enough work and you stay long enough, you know, you'll, you'll earn the opportunity for yourself. And I think part of me, maybe it's a confidence thing, but part of me always wondered, you know, maybe no matter how hard you work, that opportunity is not going to manifest itself. That was always the sort of weird philosophical problem that I would encounter thinking about journalism and talking about it with friends, you know, late nights in Cairo is, does every deserving person get an opportunity? Um, And the pessimist in me would say no. And then the optimist in me would look at all the people who did sacrifice in Cairo and did end up with good jobs. But I, I was always scared that no matter how hard I worked, the opportunity wouldn't manifest. 
But when I joined when I joined Human Rights Watch, I actually really loved it. In a way, it was a breath of fresh air because you're surrounded by people who are not doing this work for exposure. They're not doing it to be famous. They're not doing it to be on TV. They're doing it because they're true believers. And any large organization is going to have internal politics and people who desire to rise, and Human Rights Watch absolutely has that. In the Middle East division, I felt like I was given a lot of autonomy and that my sort of ability to work late nights and put in all of my effort into this job was rewarded uh, and people respected it. And so I, I liked that a lot, actually. The hard part was obviously not being able to write and not being able to even really tweet about the work I was doing. It had to be very quiet because I was going in and out of Egypt as a researcher without official approval and we didn't want to draw attention to myself. And that was very hard. You know, as a journalist, part of it is ego, obviously. But the other part is that you think you know something about something and that in that you have something to contribute to the discussion and not being able to contribute to, to the discussion is really hard. So I, I did three years at Human Rights Watch, three incredibly valuable years. And then I actually thought that the the next step for me would actually be to maybe work in foreign policy, whether that meant actually working for the government, the State Department, something like that, or just in the sort of universe of policymaking machines in Washington, D.C., think tanks and the like. And I thought I was a journalist. I was on the ground. I had experience. I wrote about it. I went into human rights research and advocacy because I felt the need to do longer investigations and also to affect uh, the policies that were touching the people who I was reporting on. The next logical step is to affect those policies, to make those policies, you know, in the beating heart of, uh, of where they're conceived in the United States. So I just, I decided to go to grad school for foreign policy because what I understood was that you essentially to break into this world, you, you need a minimum of a master's degree, if not a PhD or, or a JD. And I ended up going to the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia, probably because some like romantic part of me was pulling me towards New York again. But I also got decent financial aid from them, which, which made it possible. And I spent two years at the school I love the people I met there. I would say that these professional master's programs for public policy are far more of a sort of pass or card or badge that you earn and that you pay for rather than any kind of deep education in how foreign policy and policymaking work in the United States. I had a few professors at... SIPA, who I really loved and who were helpful in educating me about how things really work. But overall, I think that these are places people go to sort of earn a piece of paper that then grants them access to this world in Washington, D.C. What I realized going through that experience and then trying to get a job in Washington, D.C. was that it's a very cloistered world. It's a self-reinforcing world. It's a world that doesn't take change very easily, that really doesn't like to rock the boat. 
and where someone who even has worked at if if your resume even says that you worked at Al Jazeera, I think that gives people pause. I mean, if you recall, that was one of the reasons why John Ossoff initially encountered some skepticism in Georgia is because there were some ads trying to hit him on very tangential work he had done, I think, as like a <laughs> freelance documentarian for Al Jazeera. And so I, I very quickly realized that there were not a lot of jobs that were going to be available to someone like me in D.C., the jobs that were going to be available really don't support the life of someone who's in their 30s. This is another reason why people who make policy in America tend to be materially wealthy is because you, you know people who need to earn their rent from their job often can't afford to take jobs as a policy aid to, uh, to a representative or a, or a senator. So in, essentially... I was about ready to give up on that aspiration as well as journalistic aspirations, but send out a few feelers to people I knew in the world, in in the New York media world, and said, you know, if you know of anything, let me know. This will be my last shot at finding something that, that I find really rewarding and meaningful before I think really far afield in terms of a career. And I was told to look at the visual investigations team at the New York Times. And um, I reached out to Malachi Brown, who kind of was a founder of that team. And we talked, and uh, I believe he knew my work from the Arab Spring. And I ultimately got hired, which was a bit of a moonshot. And I, I consider myself extremely lucky, but it's been, I think, a really fortuitous melding of skills and experience to join this team. Yeah. And that was right. The last time I saw you, I remember you had gotten a job. You wouldn't say what it was. You said that you had to clear a background check. I was like, is he getting a job at the state department? Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, but I think, you know, a week or two later you were, you were in. So, uh, yeah, it was amazing turnaround and I was very happy to see that. I mean, I don't know, for some reason, uh, I always root for people to stay in journalism. Maybe it Uh makes my own obsession more sane seeming that others, you know, uh, you know, I thought it was a bummer when Jordan briefly left journalism and was glad to see when he came back too. Yeah. So, so yeah, wow. That's, uh, I mean, there are a lot of twists and turns in there. Correct me if I'm wrong. This might be completely made up, but I feel like I talked to you one time and you're like, I don't know if nothing works out, maybe I'll move to like a national park and like count like wolves at like a nature watching station (laughs) or something. Um, Yeah. Something you might've said. No, I, uh, uh uh-huh. Yep. I, uh, I absolutely said that. I have a very clear I have a very clear memory of saying that. Honestly, maybe that's still in the cards. Nature, like, you know, being out in nature and close to nature is is one of the things that I love. And so that's still like a, a target of mine. I don't think I'm a city rat for the rest of my life. But um I had uh you know, I had experience being outdoors in Northern California and uh my girlfriend at the time became a farmer while I was living out there. And I think that that was pretty inspiring to me. And so, you know, I thought like, yeah, you like worst comes to worst. I won't be like writing for pay anymore, but at least I won't be like harming the world and I'll be out in nature and I'll be helping the world somehow. So I can always do that. (laughs) Sure. 
Sure. No, I mean, it sounds like a nice alternative. So the next section, we'll talk a little bit about some stories. Um, I ask two questions to start on the downer and end on the more happy question. Mm -hmm. The downer one is if there is any story that got away, a story that you wanted to do at some point in your career, but for whatever reason, it just couldn't come off. You know, a trip went wrong. You couldn't get the right person to talk to you. You couldn't prove it or, you know, convince an editor. When I was working at Al Jazeera America, I had a a lead on a guy who was on the no-fly list. And as far as I knew, he was the only white, non-Muslim person known to be on the no-fly list. Everyone else Hmm. who's known to be on the no-fly list is either a Muslim person or an Arab or someone who has some nexus with those worlds. This guy had nothing, and I wanted to try to figure out how he had ended up on the no-fly list and whether this was a story that might wake people up to its opacity and and its abuse because he he wouldn't fit the sort of profile that people were used to. Turned out that this guy was a uh, an anarchist. He had connections to to foreign anarchists, but he himself had basically never never done anything that would justify placement on the no-fly list. And I wanted to I wanted to write this story and he was, you know, a, a really nice guy, not doing anything in particular that was like exciting or dangerous. And I remember pitching it around and the editors were like, well this is, you know, like the facts of this story are very interesting. But your subject is not. And <laughs> I did not have the chops to turn him into an interesting subject. And I also think that I don't have the ability that a lot of good writers have to, for lack of a better word, burn the subject of your story. So, you know, like sometimes you're covering somebody and they're the subject of your story and you have to make them look bad. And if it's a person in power, if it's the target of my investigation, no problem. That's easy for me. But if it's someone who is the subject of a feature and I have to make them interesting by reporting them warts and all and perhaps embarrassing them, that was always hard for me to do because they weren't a public figure. You know, They weren't a target. So anyway, no editor would take this story. I never got to write about the only white non-Muslim guy on the no-fly, the only anarchist I knew who was on the no-fly list. And I thought it would would have been an interesting feature that would have like pulled back the curtain a little bit on how this very secret aspect of the U.S. government functions, but I was never able to write it. Yeah, that's still pretty interesting, even if the guy wasn't. But uh, (laughs) that's a pretty good example. Okay, and then the next question is, if there's a story you're proud of, if you could just basically walk us through the process, the story behind the story, start to finish. I've been lucky enough to have a few stories in my life that I'm very, very proud of writing. But the big one in my career, I mean, it just has to be the story that was part of a Pulitzer winning package for the New York Times, which is something that we published and worked on in 2019. So Right after I'm hired 
at the New York Times on the visual investigations team, I'm told by Malachi Brown, my boss at the time, that one of the things that we are working on is attacks on healthcare in rebel-held Syria. So in the northwest of Syria, which is still under rebel control and was at the time in 2019, hospitals and clinics are routinely bombed from the air and struck by artillery from the ground. And hundreds of healthcare workers have died since the start of the conflict in 2011. This is something that happens every day. And this is obviously something that the forces of President Bashar al-Assad are committing, but it's something that we knew Russia was doing as well. And most observers of the Syrian conflict knew Russia was doing it. But the problem is there's just very few opportunities technologically and physically because no foreign journalists are, or very few foreign journalists are ever on the ground in Northwest Syria to prove that, that Russia is culpable. And so Maliki said, we're looking into this. Why don't you start looking into this? And so I got on the assignment. We started tracking hospital attacks. My colleague, Christian Trebert was also, you know, basically working constantly on this. And, we got to the point where we thought we had a pretty good visual story involving a lot of video about attacks on healthcare in Syria. It was a sad story. It was a meaningful story. And we could make a a strong circumstantial case for Russian involvement. And we took that to a meeting with our editors and the executive editor of the video news team who had oversight over visual investigations, Mark Scheffler, basically said, you need to keep trying. And we went back. And one day I was sent a piece of audio from a source in Syria that was audio of air traffic, military air traffic. And it was mostly in Arabic, but part of it was in Russian. And the fact that Russians are flying in Syria was no big secret. They publicize it. You know, they show that they're flying around Syria and they have an airbase there and they say that they're attacking terrorist targets. But then, but this made us, this was a revelation that there were audio recordings of Russian military air traffic. And we found out from a network of people who basically have organized themselves in in rebel-held Syria into aircraft observers with foreign assistance in some cases. We found out from them that they have been recording air traffic constantly. And we got from this network basically an enormous cache of Russian military air traffic audio. And we started to go through the audio that we now had in our hands to see if it would reveal who they had been bombing. And we had an editor on the team, Dimitri, who spoke Russian and he was a video editor, but one of his many skills is that he speaks Russian and he started listening to the audio and he got very adept at picking things out and figuring out what audio was going to say what, et cetera, et cetera. And one day I'm sitting in a room working by myself trying to get a little peace and quiet. And Dima sends me 
a set of coordinates that he's taken from one of the Russian audio clips and I plug it into Google Earth and it resolves on a satellite image of what looks to be an entrance to an underground facility in the countryside of Northwest Syria. And it turns out that this is a underground hospital, a well-known underground hospital called the uh, Nebed al-Hayat. And we have a Russian pilot and his controller, his ground controller, calling out the coordinates of this target and bombing it. I remember jumping up, walking with my laptop and my headphones over to the glass conference room where my editors were meeting, knocking on the glass and basically saying, you know, we've got them. You know, we've got something. And I went back over to Dima, to Dimitri, and you know, we listened to it again. And Christian came over and we realized that we had finally found a smoking gun. And from there, we kept listening to the audio. We found more coordinates that were, that were read out. We were able to show that they had bombed five hospitals in one day that May. And we put out a major front page investigation with a nine page investigative video. It got cited by the German ambassador to the United Nations at the Security Council. It was the first time anybody had found evidence of, of Russian bombing of hospitals in Syria. And it ended up being part of a package of stories that the New York Times submitted, including another one we did about Syria and Russia that ultimately won a Pulitzer Prize, in addition to a Polk and some other awards. And that, that to me, felt like it was really a culmination of my career. Not that my career is anywhere near to over at this point, but I mean, it was like combining skills and interests that I had been developing for years and sort of finally getting sort of the highest recognition for it, which felt really good. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And yeah, it wasn't that long after you had been hired. It was kind of like a pretty amazing <laughs> development. I mean, but yeah, congratulations. It was, uh, you know, shocking to go from Evan might not be a journalist anymore to, <laughs> you know, Evan's won a Pulitzer Prize. So congrats. Yeah. It was shocking for uh, equally shocking to me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's an amazing moment, uh, realizing when you've got the story. I mean, it does give us a little bit of a flavor of uh, what your work is like, because that, that was one thing I was going to say, like, I've seen the output, but I don't really understand what your job is actually like. Like, I, I could see the final product, but it, it's... Mm -hmm. Is it a really big team? I mean, is there anything you want to say about your current job just to shed some light on that? Yeah. I think people would be surprised at like how small the visual investigations team actually is. I can't remember the exact number of employees we have offhand, but I think it's basically around a, a dozen with a core group of maybe half a dozen reporters. I think that the investigations team at the New York Times on the print side I don't know how big they are either, but they might be a little bit bigger. Uh, but we're growing, and, and I think that we've become a key part of the report, and I think we've proved ourselves through our work. In a lot of ways, it's a dream job for someone like me, for any journalist who really loves investigations, because obviously there is 
the need to pitch in on breaking news and on news reports, but, but we are an, an investigative team. And that means that a lot of our time is spent poking around and trying to find things that we think are important and interesting and undercovered and could lead to, you know, real impact. And we are given the time and the space to do that. And if we think it's worth spending a month on or two months on, and if we can convince our editors, you know, we'll be given that time, which is rare, an amazing environment to work in. So we'll, we'll spend a lot of time doing what we call prospecting, which is just digging around for scoops and for things that are not being covered and seeing what the open source community is talking about on Twitter or in Discord, seeing what other people are looking at, seeing what pops up to some of the members on our team on satellite imagery. And we often jump off of events in the news. If it's something that's visual, we love to take a chaotic situation and explain it to people and render render it clear and comprehensible. We love to take controversial things that happen and try to piece them together. You know, some of the earlier work that the team did that they were recognized rightfully for was piecing together what happened during the the massacre in Las Vegas, the Mandalay Bay shooter, which was a chaotic, horrific situation. And, and Maliki led the recreation of that shooting. He also led the investigation that the team did into the um, Jamal Khashoggi assassination in, in Turkey. So a lot of what we do is to take chaotic or unclear controversial situations and try to render them comprehensible. The other part of what we do is try to find things that have not been reported. In Afghanistan, with the drone strike in August of last year, which was, in my view, another real achievement of our team, we had an event that was obviously huge and in the news, and we wanted to hold the powerful to account and see if a terrible mistake had been made. And so we, you know, that's a news event that we want to get to the bottom of, and I think we do that quite often as well. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a great job. A lot of people's dream job, for sure. Well, one one challenge for me was was learning how to work with a, a visual, you know, video medium. And most of the writing that we do when we write is scripts. And learning to be a script writer is, is a unique skill in journalism. And so our team does not write 2000 word features, which is something that I enjoyed in my life and I still enjoy. But the you know the trade off is that you're writing a script for a video, but that video is going to have hopefully a huge impact because it's an investigation because it's you know it's mm-hmm. coming out under the aegis of the New York Times. Yeah, and I mean uh, I'm friends with Jonah Kessel and did a podcast with him. And if anybody's interested in hearing more about that, they can go back and listen to the episode. But it was interesting to hear him talk about how few videographers the times actually has related to video content they have and how they're able to do so much with existing sources of video content which i imagine is a lot a lot of what your job is you know finding that drone footage or that security cam footage or the critical image that you know isn't shot by a video journalist it's you know sourced in some other way 
which I imagine can be challenging sometimes. Yeah, I mean, very, very little of the video that we use in our investigations is filmed by us. You know, for example, the 40 minute sort of documentary that our team put together on the January 6th riot at the Capitol, which is kind of shockingly shortlisted for for an Oscar in the in the category of short documentaries. We'll see if we make it to the final list, but that's been extremely exciting for us and we're glad that that got recognition. But Yeah, wow. We don't, you know, we don't produce things of that length very often. 40 minutes is exceptional, but it was an exceptional event, but none of the I don't want well, journalists should never say none, but I would venture to say that almost none of the video in that 40-minute documentary was shot by us. It's all taken from participants in the riot or freelance shooters who were on the scene. And that's typically what we'll do. Sometimes in rare occasions, we sort of have collaborative investigations or stories involving videographers on the video team. For example, I went to Northwest Syria in March of 2020, actually right before New York locked down with COVID with my colleague, uh, Yusur, who is a videographer, and um, we were filming in the uh, in the IDP camps in northwest Syria to sort of combine on-the-ground footage with an investigation into airstrikes on civilians. So we did that, and, and we also combined in a report we did on Israeli bombing in Gaza last summer. And I think that those combinations can be really effective because you have that professional high-quality interview or on-the-ground footage combined with the user-generated or the found footage that you use in the investigation. And I think that I like to do that because I think that it makes viewers actually connect with the subject a little bit better. Sure, that makes sense. So next up is the lightning round. It's uh, the shortest section although it has the most questions, uh, feel free to answer at whatever length you like. Do you feel ready? I'm ready. So the first question is, uh, I kind of need to adjust it for you because I wouldn't say you have a beat or anything, but basically what is a good publication you read that's related to your job, but maybe everybody doesn't know, maybe something related to the Middle East or something else that you want to shout out for doing a particularly good job that you know, not everybody might be necessarily turned on to. It could be in another language if you want. That's an interesting question for us, actually, because I would say that the most useful stuff that I read are open source investigators on Twitter, and they don't exist in any one place. It's actually been, it's taken a lot of work on my part to create lists uh, of the Twitter users to follow for open source information. I mean, Bellingcat sort of blazed a trail for the way that open source is done online and they're great for that. So I would say the people I go to every day are online open source investigators, many of whom are either anonymous or don't work for major publications and if any of your listeners are interested in finding out or following any of these people, um, I'm happy to recommend them on Twitter. The Washington Post has an amazing visual forensics team 
they call theirs visual forensics. We call ours visual investigations. And they've done like exceptional work, you know, for example, on the condo collapse in Florida, on the Beirut port explosion on January 6th. So I would highly recommend them as well. Cool. Those are all good ones. And the next one is the flip side of that. What is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? So it can be any medium. Well, first of all, I'm a terrible podcast listener, but the two seasons so far of the Blowback podcast have been exceptional. First one is about the Iraq War. Second one is about U.S. relations with Cuba during the Cold War, culminating in the assassination of JFK. And both of those seasons, I felt like, were not only just sort of good on the level of like basic recapitulation of historical events, but good at sort of historical revisionism in a way that's very necessary in the United States, particularly with, with regards to the second season about Cuba, which involved a lot of interviews with Cubans. A lot of Americans don't understand the actions the U.S. has taken towards Cuba over the last, let's say, 50 well, actually more like a hundred years and I would highly recommend blowback. Cool. Yeah. I haven't checked that out. I don't even know if I'd heard of it, but it seems pretty interesting. What is the best journalistic article piece? Again, whatever medium you have consumed recently and it can't be from your own publication. You know, I spend way too much damn time like working. And then when I'm not working, trying not to work that. (laughs) And I don't know if this is the same for other journalists. I read like an embarrassingly small amount of the like non relevant reporting. Like if it's something related to stuff that I'm reporting on, I'll read it. But all of like the great reads and the long reads, I spend an embarrassingly little amount of time with them. But when I was thinking about this question and I was looking through some of the stuff that was published in 2021, this is boring because it's (laughs) so, it's so basic and relevant to the work I did. But ProPublica did a project where they tried to basically map time and archive all of the videos that were hacked from parlor during the January 6th riot. And their their work on archiving the relevant videos related to January 6th, not only the parlor videos, but also videos related to all the court cases are, that are going on. I mean, that's it's obviously what they do. That's their thing is public service, but that is such a huge public service that um, myself, other journalists and investigators should definitely be thanking them. And I thought that was great work. Cool, cool. Is there a name of the project if people are looking for it? One of them is called What Parlor Saw at January 6th or What Parlor Saw on January 6th. I can't remember. Sure. Yeah, that's what I would Google. Okay, cool. And then is there any specific subject matter that you geek out about that isn't related to your job? I love to backpack. I love to go backpacking. I love backpacking in the Catskills. I'm trying to learn more about how to function and survive outdoors. I swear this has no relation to the fear of societal breakdown after COVID. (laughs) No, it's just, you know, I I love, like I said, I love being out in nature. So that was the thing I got into over the pandemic, but I'm, I'm trying to find something else I can geek out on that I can do indoors. It's hard when you live in an apartment in New York because physical activity is rather limited. There's, you know, you can't really woodwork in your New York apartment. Sure. 
So I'm thinking that maybe 2022 is the year I try to teach myself to play uh, acoustic guitar, which is, uh, you know, stereotypical, but what else am I going to do? Sure. Yeah. Good indoor activity. (laughs) If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I thought about this question and honestly, like, so first of all, I'm shockingly like happy with my trajectory. And so like, on one hand, I wanted to say, well, I wouldn't give this up for anything. Then I was thinking about past journalists and I was thinking about going off to like cover the Spanish civil war and drinking in Paris. And I thought, and I was about to say, oh, well, you know, I would, I would, I would be Hemingway. And then I thought, well, there's way too many problems with Hemingway. I don't want to say Hemingway. (laughs) So then I gave it more thought. And I actually, I, I thought that one of the journalists who I feel like has done some of the best work that I most admire and also some of, you know, the most like diverse, interesting work is um, the journalist Lawrence Wright who wrote the looming tower. I think maybe his most famous book is the looming tower, which is about sort of how September 11th came to be. I mean, so much of what became conventional knowledge about Al Qaeda and the history of Osama bin Laden and the breakdown between the CIA and the FBI came out of the looming tower and his work. It's such a, such a formative book, but he also, I just finished reading his book on Scientology called going clear, which is also astoundingly good. And to be someone who's a good investigative journalist who can also write books. I think that's something that I would like to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good one. What is one thing most people don't know about you? I'm trying to let more people know about it by being an obnoxious person on Twitter, but I really love psych rock, like garage rock, post-punk, punk, punk, going to shows in New York. I made myself a promise during the COVID lockdown that as soon as music started, live music started up again, I'd go to see as many as I possibly could. So I've been to some great shows recently, the OCs, Mets. I also saw Waxahachie. She was great. I'm going to see Godspeed You Black Emperor and another band that I love saying the name of, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, <laughs> this, this spring. So anyone who like, I, th- I would say any of my friends who know me, they know that I'm kind of obsessed with uh, that genre of music. This one is hit or miss. Uh, you don't necessarily have to answer because sometimes it, it's just, you know, brings out depressing stories rather than funny stories. But what is your most embarrassing journalism related story? <laughs> I mean, it's funny because like my embarrassing moments are also the moments that like, uh, you know, get the shit beat out of me or something like that. <laughs> like embarrassing mistakes that are also like physically harm- harmful mistakes. Ah, oh, embarrassing. Uh well, I would say that, like, you know, one of the regular embarrassing things that would happen to me as a young journalist reporting on courts and judges and, like, prosecutors in San Francisco is that I would regularly have to go interview judges for, like, a profile session we would do, a profile section. And so I would have to go down to, like, Santa Clara, California, or the South Bay, and interview judges. 
you know, I didn't have a car because I was young and poor. So I'd bring my bike on the train and then bike to the courthouse, <laughs> go to the judge's chambers. And I would quite often end up just sweating through my like ill-fitting work suit or work uh, button up in front of judges and just being incredibly embarrassed. I also had another embarrassing experience that is actually, it's like half embarrassing and half frightening, which is when I was in Egypt for Human Rights Watch, I uh, traveled to a city outside of Cairo to do some interviewing and I was going to meet somebody there. And I was texting this person in Arabic, which I have a decent command of, but not a fluent command of. And I thought that this person wrote back to me something about how they are coming for you. And I think that had been preceded by me asking her if it was still safe to meet or something like that. And I thought that they had written back to me, you know, something, something like they are coming for you. And I thought that this person knew something that I didn't know. They had been arrested or something and they were trying to tip me off. And so I, for the next 10 to 20 minutes, uh, I was in a hotel room and I thought I was going to be arrested. And I was like, should I throw my phone in the toilet? You know, should I crush it? Should I, should I hide? Should I call my bosses? You know, and I was, I was more or less paralyzed with fear, which was actually good because it meant I didn't do anything. I didn't flush my electronics. I didn't try to crush my electronics. I didn't hide in the closet. And I looked at the message a second time and also sent it to a Arabic speaking friend of mine. And I was like, does this say what I think it says? And it says, and they said, no, it, it's, it's a way of saying, you know, like welcome, basically like you've arrived, you've arrived safely or something. I can't remember the exact words. It seems very stupid now that I would ever misinterpret it, but it basically my lack of fluency in Arabic set me off on uh, an enormous panic. Yeah. Wow. That is, uh, I mean, yeah. Embarrassing, but scary. But scary. Yeah. Let's see, uh, rounding it out, just a couple more questions. What is the coolest, strangest, weirdest, whatever situation you've gotten into? I like to call it a, a pinch me moment where you, you can't believe this is your life, that a moment that journalism has gotten you into one of these pinch me, I can't believe this is my life moments. Uh, I mean, that's an easy one. That would be the Egyptian uprising in, in Tahrir Square. There was one night in particular, it was the night of what it's what they call the camel battle when the square was assaulted by sort of supporters and hired thugs of Hosni Mubarak. And they tried to take the square back by force. And there was sort of a pitched battle on the north side of the square by the Egyptian museum where the defenders were in this almost like medieval straight out of Les Miserables kind of situation with metal sheets and furniture as their barricade, throwing Molotovs back and forth, throwing rocks at each other. And I was in a hotel overlooking that and decided to sneak down and made my way into the square, which is another stupid thing that you do when you're in your <laughs> mid-20s. But, you know, one of the few reporters to actually go inside that night. And, you know, I felt like I was in the middle of a historic drama, which, you know, I was... And that was probably the most important, one of the most important and, and rewarding experiences of my journalism career. 
Yeah, wow. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? It can be tangential. It could potentially be nonfiction, too, but just some piece of media about journalists. I feel like probably a lot of people say Spotlight and... I don't want to say Spotlight, even though Spotlight is great. And also it has, you know, the most realistic depiction of journalistic non-fashion that's ever been made. Uh, and it, I think it represents like the mundane mundanity of journalism quite well. But actually, I thought about this and I, I think that the one that came to mind is uh, Anthony Lloyd's book, My War Gone By, I Miss It So. So Anthony, Anthony Lloyd was an English journalist who covered conflict in the Balkans. And it's his memoir. He was a, a heroin user, arguably a, a heroin addict as well, but a reporter, I believe for the Times of London. But his memoir, My War Gone By, I Miss It So, on one hand, it feeds into this stereotypical sort of narrative that makes the journalist the center of the story and his drama the central drama. And in its own weird way, romanticizes the, you know, agony of being the journalist. On the other hand, those are real phenomena and the ego of the journalist is real and, and needs to be dealt with. And I think that his representation, his very honest, viscerally honest representation of what it felt like to cover this conflict for him and also for the people he associated with is really moving in its own way. And I, I'm I'm glad that he wrote it and it's just it's just a wonderful writing as well his style. And the last question is qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do? I think we probably hit this earlier in our conversation but I would probably be somewhere out in the wilderness. I've often wondered if it would be possible for me to join one of these hotshot firefighting services that like jump in around or go travel around California fighting fires. And uh, I think I would be out in the wilderness counting wolves or farming if I weren't a journalist. <laughs> Good answer. Okay, cool. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, no, this was fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing it. I thought it went really well. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Evan Hill, a reporter on the New York Times visual investigations team who was previously based in the Middle East. I'll post links to some of the things Evan talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, March 6th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.